Hello, I'm Rachel Vaughan-Jones and this is the Building Liquid podcast, a show about startups in the drinks world, the founders that are building them and the tipples that have inspired them along the way. Today I'm joined by Elwyn Gladstone, who I can only describe as the godfather of spirits marketing. (laughs) I hope you don't mind me calling you the godfather. Um, Early on in his career, Elwyn was responsible for innovation at William Grant & Sons, launching world-famous brands such as Hendrix Gin and Sailor Jerry's before moving over to Proximo, where he developed brands like Kraken Rum. 2015, he founded Bigger and Leaf, which has been responsible for launching what is arguably the most eye-catching gin on the market right now, Malfi, and most recently for the launch of Starlino, a range of aperitivos. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Very nice to meet you. So for anyone who doesn't yet know Starlino or indeed know about aperitivos, um, could you give us a brief overview? Yeah, sure. So um, we uh, work very closely with our friends in uh, Torino Distillati, which is an old um, uh, distillery, winery, bottling bottling plant uh, just outside of uh, Torino, which is, as we all know, one of the sort of world capitals of cocktails, uh, food, wine. Um, we were looking around... Um, the, the Torino Distillati facility and noticed that they, you know, they have, they have a lot of interest in Amaros and in vermouths and lots of great expertise and kind of took that away with us and, and thought maybe that's an interesting um, sort of area to innovate in because consumers, I think, are getting more comfortable with uh, the idea of, you know, what are botanicals and Italian stuff. People love Italian stuff all over the world. Uh, The Italians have been very clever uh, as a nation in kind of pushing their food and drink brands and food and drink products all across the world. So Italian and Italian-ness has a kind of global appeal all over the world. There's Italian restaurants in pretty much every country you go to. And we love, we, you know, we, we we love Italian stuff and we love the Vagnano family who own Torino Distillati and, and all of their people that work there. And um, we, we really thought, well, you know, gin is an amazing category and has kind of got people into the concept of botanicals and flavors and that kind of thing. And so we thought, well, let, let's let's try and put a twist on um, on on vermouths and aperitivos. Um, and you know, so so we we came up with the concept of of Starlino Hotel Starlino as as a brand, and um, really tried to kind of tap into that sort of turn of the century, very stylish hotel look and feel that you see in in the great cities like Milan and and Torino, and with these very beautiful decadent hotels, very stylishly sort of decorated and everything. And that's kind of, that was the inspiration for the packaging. And we've got lots of fun little touches on the packaging, like the back, the back label is a is a do not disturb sign um, that you'd hang on a door in a hotel. The front is is sort of a design riff on, on an old elevator um, advertisement that we found. So, you know, we really think that kind of look and feel has great appeal and great standout. And, and we've created a fun range of, of, of products. We have a lovely red vermouth, Rosso vermouth, which is a um, vermouth di Torino. It's a IGP. 
and uh, it's aged in bourbon barrels. So we, we buy bourbon barrels in the US and ship them over to Italy. Nice. And it makes, you know, makes a delicious red vermouth. And then, and then we have um, two aperitivos. We have a, a, a rosé. Everyone loves rosé at the moment. And that has all sorts of interesting citrus notes in it. Lots of citrus peel, grapefruit peel. Um, very refreshing, very spritzy. It's uh, lower in alcohol. So again, that's a sort of trend that we're seeing more and more people drinking a bit lower in alcohol. And then we have a, an orange one, Arancioni, um, which is just a, a kind of very refreshing kind of natural, perhaps you could call it a natural alternative to something like Aperol. Um, so it's wine-based and and, and uh, very delicious as a spritz or with some soda or with tonic. I think Torino's just gone to the top of my hit list for when the world opens up to travel again. <laughs> yeah. We've sold the dream there. Um, and yeah. I've got the rosé version here, so I'll be giving that a try a little later on. Very good. We also sell, um, we also sell in the range, we sell amazing uh, cherries, maraschino cherries. And um, those are actually, they're made in Napoli in, in southern Italy. But, you know, they, they've been tremendously successful. And I think there is a huge amount of interest that's certainly probably built over COVID times of people trying to make cocktails. You know, they remember a great cocktail they had in the, in the you know, in, in a fancy bar somewhere in Paris or London. And, and they go onto the internet and they search out, how, how do you make that thing? And, and there's a lot of these ingredients like bitters and, and, and cherries that, that people are looking, are looking out for. Um, so we're doing a lot of good, good business with those two. So would you say you're bringing the maraschino cherry back? <laughs> I... <laughs> yeah, that's right. We had a really nice piece in um, Alice Lassels, who writes for the um, yeah. Times How to Spend It. So she, she's, a cherry, she's a cherry nut. And um, <laughs> gave us a nice, a couple of nice write-ups on our cherries. Like so many things in America, maraschino cherries are kind of those very um, electric red things that you get in great big jars and you put on your ice cream. Yeah. Um, and uh, we've tried to make something a bit more sophisticated and uh, less, less overtly sweet and more kind of refined, more refined and more with flavors. What we really try and do is we try and make them with flavors that you associate with things like um, Manhattan uh, Manhattan cocktails. So vanilla-y and spicy and all that kind of thing. So yeah, that's a fun, that's a fun business to, to work in. So we touched on kind of the branding for Hotel Starlino, but before we talk all things branding, I want to go back to sort of the start. Um, am I right in thinking that your first foray into the world of drinks was working at an Oddbins in Edinburgh? That's right. Yeah. So when I was at, um, at university there, I worked part time at Oddbins, which was a great learning, just learning, uh, you know, how the wine and spirits industry work and kind of at the coalface of it all, actually selling the stuff, which I think some drinks marketers sometimes forget that you actually have to sell the stuff. So that was, um, <laughs> that was a good experience. And um, it was actually, I, I, you probably know this, but it used to be owned by Seagram's. Um, Interesting. Yeah. When I, when I worked there, it had just been sold by Seagram's. So um, they had lots of Seagram's products always they were pushing. Um, but I got a great, great insight at Oddbins um, when it was, uh, you know, it's still a great store. And um, but but then it was very, very eclectic. And I think their kind of model was to make a kind of neighborhood wine shop 
in, in you know on every high street and, and they did an amazing job with it and learned a lot about single malts which they sold lots of about champagne about spirits and, and and you know and wine so that was a really good grounding in 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 the world of wine and spirits and Edinburgh has, I mean, today it has a fantastic food and drink scene. I think my favourite meal ever that I've ever had was in Edinburgh. Was that always the case in those days as well? No, I think that's all relatively new. Isn't it? <laughs> I remember I, I remember at the halls of residence, you got five points for your meal. And, and one of the challenges was, could you make every single, could you make every one of your five points from potatoes? So you could have like <laughs> chips and hash browns and baked potato. So I, I think that the food scene in Edinburgh, I think they had all, they've always obviously had all the ingredients, but I think the, the food scene and the restaurants and the bars and everything is, is relatively maybe 20 years new, but certainly they, they do have fantastic restaurants in Edinburgh now, amazing. They do. I think my mother, my Irish mother, might actually quite like the idea of a meal yeah. made up of five yeah. points of potatoes. Exactly. <laughs> if, if potatoes are very expensive, everybody would treat them as a, as a delicacy. 100%. So Edinburgh to California, that's quite a change. Yeah. Um, what was it like living there? Oh, it was great. So I, I, I went to study um, viticulture um at uc davis i got a scholarship to go over there and um had a great time living out in california working and and doing a postgrad degree at uc davis which is one of the big you know wine winemaking schools in the world and um again learned a completely different side to the wine and spirits industry you know that's that's the raw material side um and the winemaking side and that was, uh, you know, really, really enjoyed it and, you know, really, really, really interesting. And were there any kind of standout drinks moments from your time then that really stayed with you and stuck in your memory? You know, I, I, I love wine. I've, I've, always, I've always been fascinated by wine and traveled around a lot in France and Germany and going visiting vineyards and having holidays there and learning about wine for fun. Um, and California wine, you know, I don't know if you've been to California, but it, it, it is, it's an amazing thing. Um, it's an, it's an amazing industry. The best California wines are all consumed in, in California or in the US generally. It's an amazing place and they make some amazing wines. So you worked within some amazing businesses before you started your own. Um, would you say that doing your own thing was always on the cards for you, something you always wanted to do? Yeah, I think I've always been um, I've always been quite sort of independently minded. It's quite a plunge to go and do your own thing. So I took the approach of learning a great deal from bigger companies and learning how they do it. And you know, I was very my, my business partner at Bigger and Leith is Mark Teasdale, who's kind of been a mentor for me for my career. Uh, I work with him at William Grant and Sons, and, and he, you know, Mark Teasdale tr truly is the person who came up with Hendrix Gin and Sailor Jerry and that whole raft of of new brands at William Grant Sons during that period and, and you know so it's been great having worked with worked with him for such a long time and he you know I learned a great learned a great deal from him he's he's learned a couple of things from me and and he's been a great sort of mentor and you know very few people have the ability that someone like he does of sort of spotting these very interesting, clever, differentiated ideas and having the guts. I think it's really about having the guts just to be different and to not end up making everything look the same. And I think that's, that sort of shines through in some of the stuff we've, we've done together. 
And do you think Mark's looking for any new mentees? <laughs> Put my name in the hat. <laughs> yeah, he's very, very approachable. You can, you can always, uh, if, you, if, you, if you know the right people to ask, he's, he's very approachable once you know him. So we have to talk branding. Um, and I once heard you say that spirits bottles are almost like coffee table books. And oh, yeah. I think that's actually a fantastic way to approach design. Like, yeah. is that bottle impactful enough to hang around in someone's home long after the spirit is gone? I mean, yeah. ideally, they would repeat purchase. Um, <laughs> where did your eye for impactful design and impactful aesthetics come from? Um, I mean, my my um, my my family is is quite sort of artistic, and I've sort of grown up with nice things and going to museums and and kind of just a general interest in in nice design and furniture and and things like that. So it's kind of probably come come from from there, uh, and then really sort of you know the psychology behind it all. I'm not. I'm not a proper marketer. I'm not. I'm not like a trained marketer. I, I've never worked at a truly big company, so it's kind of self-taught. Again, I think it's really about trying to come up with something that is very, very different. And I think the danger with the way big companies do new brands is they have a formula for doing it. They even worse. They often hire agencies who who have a formula for doing it. And they put it into research and consumers only know what they know, as we know from Steve Jobs and Apple and all those kinds of things. And so they tend to critique ideas because they're not what they know. So what ends up happening in, in the sort of big company way of doing new brands is you tend to get something out the other end, which has been so sanded down and so touched up that it ends up looking like everything else. And I, and I think... The really gutsy, the gutsy thing is to is to a not put things into research, go with your gut, and believe that your taste, you know, will be adapted by people if if you know if you work hard enough at it, and to really really strive to make things highly differentiated, and highly uh, you know touch emotional triggers, and I think a lot of that is keeping things extremely simple, not you know making sure that you're not telling what I call an in-joke, right? So a lot of packaging to me, a lot of it is in-jokes. And you can tell someone who thought of the idea, kind of, they thought it was kind of funny, but they didn't think, well, does, does a consumer find this funny or interesting, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think also a problem in kind of the big blue chips is that there are so many different opinions these kind of big businesses that have multiple markets all over the world there are so many stakeholders that you'll have a kind of a core idea and then by the time everyone has sort of had a bit of an opinion here and a bit of an opinion there and shaved a little bit off here and a bit off there yeah. you've either lost the distinctiveness that you had in the first place to kind of keep everyone happy or you yeah. end up with a complete Frankenstein <laughs> um yeah exactly it's a mishmash of everyone's opinions and you lose that kind of individuality that you maybe had in the first place. But do you think that starting brands completely from scratch, when we talk about research, starting brands completely from scratch gives you more freedom, maybe even more courage to kind of follow your instincts versus, for example, a massive company whose brand brings in tens of millions of dollars of revenue every year and they know it needs a refresh? That yeah. 
there's kind of a nervousness, understandably, that would come from making a change without asking existing consumers. So yeah. do you think it's much easier to just kind of run with an idea when you're doing something completely from scratch? I mean, coming up with a new brand, the odds of making a successful one are one in a million, say, or whatever it is, tiny, tiny, tiny chance of making it work commercially. And on the other hand, you know, uh, if you do get it right, it, it's it's very exciting and fun and it causes a lot of, you know, of a stir in the industry if you get them, if you get them really, really good. I think, you know, you know, uh, touching up Johnny Walker or Malibu or whatever, I think, you know, I think you need to do that um, to keep it fresh, totally get it. And it's a totally different discipline. Um, I, I, I sometimes have the, have had had the opinion, but I'm very opinionated. I sometimes had the opinion, like, if you're going to change something, don't change it unless someone's actually going to notice you've changed it. And if you're worried about someone noticing changing it, don't bother changing it. <laughs> yes. But that's very easy for me to say. I mean, I, I think perhaps sometimes big brands, you do wonder if they're just doing it because it's something for a marketing manager to do. And you know. before you know it, you've spent, you know, half a million quid on smoothing out the edge of a logo and, you know. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And if there's one in a million that succeeds, um, does that mean that there are lots of um, discarded innovations on the cutting room floor at Bigger and Leaf? Yeah, we do. Loads. Yeah, we have loads of ideas. Um, that Most of them are terrible. But, you know, ideas are for free and... You know, if someone copies your idea, you just think of another one. So, you know, there's that the, it is some to some extent, uh, you know, an endless resource. Um, coming up with something that really excites people is definitely is definitely challenging. Um, but we do lots. I mean, our, bigger and leaf now. You, you mentioned Stalino, which is very kind. We have a we have an Amaro brand we've launched called um, Stambeco. Uh, which is um, just just rolling out, and that's a beautiful thing that we've that we've developed. We have a hot sauce, um, an Italian hot sauce called Ferelli. Love hot sauce. Uh, so that's a fun project that we're, we're just we're just starting to sell now. It's from Italy as well, and we have a, a lovely tequila we're about to bring out, and uh, lots of different lots of different projects that that we're working on. So we're trying. You know, most successes come from single probably from single brand companies i think that that that's a that's a fair way to to kind of capture the biggest successes tito's kettle one um those kinds of brands they they tend to come from very focused single brand companies but we think you know it's interesting to try and develop you know a few of different ideas and and you know take take a series of small bets and, and see which ones work and after you've kind of launched something, one of those many bets, how soon after launch do you get a sense of, okay, we've got something here, this is a goer? It's really interesting. I mean, my view is slightly that you kind of know quite quickly whether it's going to work or not. I think you know in the first couple of years, or you have a pretty strong sense in the first couple of years, whether you've really got something scalable um, and something that has universal appeal. And, you know, the big, uh, I, I don't practice what I preach, but the, the big, the big discipline in this stuff is to kill things. Um, but, you know, back your winners and, and don't back your losers. I, I think it's, it's relatively quick. There's, you know, there's a few examples. Sailor Jerry's a good one. That one, that one was almost discontinued, I think, by William Grant and Sons. And, and after a couple of years, they tried it in, you know, tried a slightly different approach and tried it in a different place. And it, and it just took off. 
Um, so I think there are many instances where a tweak to something can get it going. But I think generally you kind of know in the first in the first few years whether they're gonna whether they're gonna work or not. If we talk about kind of bespoke bottles, um, yeah. I think you put a massive emphasis on packaging as kind of I think I heard you say once like ninety five percent of spirits marketing is can be attributed to the beautiful packaging and yeah. lots of the brands that you've kind of launched or developed have yeah. bespoke bottles. Yeah. But obviously that's quite a high barrier to entry because producing bespoke glass particularly is expensive and long lead time. So do yeah. you think it is possible to launch a brand and that will stick and that can become iconic without investing that heavily up front? Definitely. I mean, Tito's, he's done all right. Grey Goose, they've done all right. They're in, they're in they're regular old bottles. Um, so absolutely. It's just, I think, you know, every business, every company needs to have something that kind of guides them. And our guide is that, it, you know, we strongly believe that packaging is a huge portion of the brand and that that packaging tells your story. You can't have, you can't have, you can't have me or Mark or someone standing next to every bottle in every store, you know, <laughs> explaining, you know, look, this is, this is a hotel label or whatever. Grab the cherries uh, as well. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, this, the, the, the story has to be told from that lonely, sad shelf in, in the wine store or the, or the liquor store. And so I believe that if you create bespoke packaging, bespoke bottles, you greatly enhance your chance of someone saying yes. And to me, it's all about, you know, can I go into a liquor store and show them a product and they say, I'll take that because I don't already have one of those. That's my, that's my kind of my filter. And doing things like bespoke bottles puts you up a notch in terms of the chances, chances of that store owner or bar owner saying, Yes, because they see you've gone to a lot of care doing it. They've seen that it will sell off the shelf potentially or has a higher potential to sell off the shelf. And uh, I, I just think that, you know, wh while it is expensive doing bespoke bottles, if you think of the total cost of setting up these businesses and setting up these brands and you say, OK, for 20, I don't know, let's say $20,000 more you greatly enhance the chance of having a unique brand proposition package whatever that is the best 20,000 or 40,000 whatever it is that you could spend that you could spend there because the problem is is the glass companies make these beautiful shapes bottles and people do their best to put labels on them and make them look different but at the end of the day you know the the the, the consumer sees a shape and they associate that and they start saying, well, that looks the same as that. And that looks the same as that. So it's this thing of everything begins to look the same. Um, and that's all we fight against continually. And it's almost the silhouette test. Like if you think about the brands where if you completely blacked out everything and took the outside shape, you know, I mean, Hendrix is a great example. Kraken's a great example. Royal Salute is another example where if you just take that bottle, the outline, it's it's instantly recognizable as being from that brand. So I guess, yeah, it's it's setting yourself up for the future. Yeah. I know you said before that sometimes the downfall of these bigger companies is that they have a set formula for the way that they approach innovation. But yeah. from your experience, do you think that there is kind of a winning formula now? Is it distinctiveness, bespoke bottle, interesting liquid, riding on the back of, you know, Starlino's got 
it's a lower alcohol product. Um, is there kind of a key checklist or formula that you think um, you follow for the innovations that you release? No, I mean, we, uh, you know, we try, you know, all those things you described are, yes, absolutely. And and like I said, we try and do things which don't already exist. The world doesn't really need another, I don't know, bourbon in a, you know, nice square bottle. Like, unless you, unless you own a bourbon distillery and you're trying to sell a lot of bourbon, like, the world doesn't really need that. Um, so I think you need a really interesting uh package that that will kind of draw you in you need a really interesting story um about you know where is it made what are the ingredients what's inside of it um i think i used to think i used to think liquid the taste of things was less important I, i'm i've since doing malfi and doing my own business i've really realized that like getting these liquids right is incredibly important i think when you work for big companies you become a bit blase because they're just you know you st- 10,000 cases of Jose Cuervo tequila or whatever, you're like, well, yep. nobody can care what it tastes like, right? Surely not. <laughs> <laughs> They're putting it in a margarita. But I do think for new stuff, you really do need to get the liquids right. And and one of the, ta- one of the tests I use, again, because, you know, I go out and sell the stuff myself is if you go into a store and you pour, you have, you have five, you know, you have five seconds in front of the store owner or the bar owner. That, that if you're lucky, they'll give you time to have a little taste of something. Often they just say, I don't care what it tastes like. But sometimes they say, say what it tastes like. And consumers certainly care what it tastes like. You know, the sip test, a little tiny sip, does, does that like, you know, cause a light bulb? That's really, really important. And I think, you know, you can talk about, you know, how does it taste in a cocktail or whatever. But at the end of the day, I think these liquids need to taste great on their own. Just think of the worst environment you could taste them in, which is, you know, in a dark store, in a little plastic, horrible sippy cup, probably warm. And if yep. it's good like that, you're, you, you know, you, again, you've elevated your chance of someone coming in and, and actually buying it. And more importantly, coming back and buying it again. So I'm going to mix a drink. Very nice. You're in the US, so you won't be joining me, but you can join me in spirit. Um, so I've got the rosé. Ice. I've also actually got the grapefruit Malfi here because I really love like a citrusy note so I thought that this would really enhance that and then I'm just going to top that up with some soda very nice so I know we talked through it before but just give me a bit more detail on the rosé yeah so it's uh it's obviously made in 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 Torino in Moncalieri uh, it's made from, it's wine-based. It's made with uh, a, a, a bunch of different botanicals, including uh, grapefruit peel, orange peel, and it's extremely refreshing, 17% alcohol. It's not too sweet, delicious with, with soda, with some ice, with tonic, and, and will make for a delicious drink. There you go. Well, you decide. You say that. <laughs> I have actually tried it before, and I have to say it's very good. Drinks do have the the ability to transport you in the in a similar way to perfume and scent that you know we're all locked down in the UK anyway. Yeah. And you know, actually mixing yourself a drink, garnishing it with that little maraschino cherry that reminds you of a time you were sitting on the coast in yeah. Italy having this amazing experience. It can help to transport you back to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in wine, they talk about terroir and everything, which is is all very interesting and can get a bit pretentious. The whole thing, but. There is something fascinating about with drinks about the place 
the placeness of them. So, I mean, Scotch whiskey in Scotland outside is is an absolutely incredible drink. It, it, you know, if you've been to, I, I, I've been to Isla quite a few times, and you know, you try those Isla whiskies in in the place, in the miserable weather and rain and all that kind of thing, and and they are you know, sensations that are imprinted in your brain um, forever. And and the same way with Italian stuff, you know, you have a really good Negroni in Torino or wherever, and and you you are, you know, you hold that for, for, for the rest of your life. And, and I think trying to come up with tastes and flavor profiles that are very evocative, whatever that, that may be, maybe a flavor profile that, you know, comes from a long time ago, is a very powerful way of you know, getting people to buy the product again. Um, and I think that's a big thing for drinks entrepreneurs is like, you know, if you're going to make, a, a, you know, a crafted vodka and someone goes and buys the handcrafted vodka for 50 pounds or whatever, it's got to be a pretty amazing thing for them to come back and buy another bottle of the 50 pound handcrafted vodka. And with a lot of stuff we do, we, you know, we try and do things with flavor, with 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 more of a story around the liquid um, so you're not just relying on on kind of on the hope that they come back and, and, and buy your vodka again. What is your favorite Starlino surf? Uh, it's probably like asking you to choose a child, a favorite child. <laughs> no, I think it's delicious. I mean, I, I love it on the rocks with 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 just a little bit of with just a little bit of a splash of a splash of of soda. I think it's you know very refreshing, easily as good as any you know rosé wine in terms of you know what it delivers. Very very simple, and and again, I think with all the drinks we develop, I love cocktails, I love mixology, love all that stuff. But I do think you know the average consumer, they just want something they can put in a glass with some ice. You know, if they're going crazy, maybe put a slice of lemon with it. But it's got to be incredibly simple for the consumer at home to to be able to to enjoy it and to get to get what you're doing. Hundred percent, and I think you know, craft gin boom came. You know, a big part of that reason was people at home can easily mix a G and T. There's nothing scary yeah. about pouring yourself a measure of gin, whacking in some tonic, and as you say, if you're feeling a little bit fancy, putting a garnish in there, and it gives you that kind of beautiful moment and ritual. But it's it's not scary. Everyone can do it. Absolutely, and and I, as you say, I think the flavor thing. You know, Hendrix is is cucumber and rose petal. Whether whether consumers can actually taste cucumber and rose petal, I'm not sure, but it, it doesn't matter because they've heard that's what it is, and and that sounds cool. And you know, once you know something is in there, your senses are heightened and, and you can taste it. And I think that was a very clever little twist with that brand, and kind of sparked a whole revolution of flavors and talking about the botanicals and um and and making it really really interesting for consumers to try things definitely i love a bit of cucumber in my gin um so what's next for starlino obviously i don't want to keep banging on about 2020 and the way that the world is but you know looking to the future uh what's next yeah, I mean, we've got it into, it's going well. We've got it into um, 35 markets now. So it's it's selling very well. And we continue to believe the category will take shape. I think the category, you know, aperitivos and vermouths and that kind of thing, it needs a little bit of help from the retailers because that section of the supermarket shelf is a little bit tired and dusty as it was with gin and as it was with tequila a while ago. So I think that, you know, as more entries come in, I think that will help a lot. I think as, you know, 
consumers like like gin it's interesting gin we talk about place flavor places but also consumers travel a great deal um consumers of premium spirits travel a great deal and i do think things like gin were very driven by you know consumers visiting spain trying those big copa glasses and and taking it back with them and i think you know the vermouth craze is happening a little bit in in spain and and and, and a little bit in in italy and i think you know once once people start traveling again, which they will, we hope, um, you know, these things will travel a little bit more. So I think Stalino, we're, we're very, very optimistic about it. It's going well. I think the spritz thing is is catching on. Um, and we're just going to keep on, keep on plugging away at it. So my final question, yeah. I always ask, is on a desert island, ah. um, imagine that it's Every, no one's going to choose a cold desert island, right? So imagine it's warm. You've got plenty of ice. Chilling facilities are available. You've got all of your own brands available at your fingertips. So aside from that, what are the few things that you couldn't live without in your liquor cabinet? Ah, uh, okay. So I think I would have a bottle of Malfi Con Limone. I think that is a absolutely fantastic, incredibly delicious summer drink. I would have a very nice bottle of of bourbon. I love American whiskeys. I can't say a brand, but I, I do think you know American whiskey is 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 a great is a great drink. Isla whiskey, a bottle of Isla whiskey. Um, it's not the most refreshing drink, but it certainly is a you know a tie. You just need a tiny amount of it to get the idea. Yep, and when you have maybe a stormy night on your desert island, right. the waves crashing in. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I love Campari. I think that's a great, you know, bitter drink. And you can then make all sorts of interesting Negronis and things like that. And uh, what else would I have? Let's think. We've got gin. We've got American whiskey, Scotch whiskey. Rum, I suppose you'd have to have. We have a brand new <laughs> tail. You'd have to have a bottle of rum on a desert island to make a nice, uh, a nice rum cocktail. Um, and I think rum is again, another really, really interesting category and, and, you know, it's a very delicious drink. It just, it just needs, it just needs more brands coming in to make it more interesting. And yeah, that's, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good cabinet for a desert island. Sounds like a pretty good cabinet to me. <laughs> Owen, thank you so much for, for speaking to me today. It's okay. been amazing to pick the brains of the godfather of spirits marketing. Feel free to use that across your link. You know, if you're getting your business cards updated, feel free. I'll give you that one for free. I live in New Jersey too, so that's a good uh... Yeah. Maybe not then. Okay. <laughs> um, it's been absolutely fantastic. And I am adding Torino to my travel list and Great. Amaro and Maraschino cherries from Stalino to my shopping list. Um, and I hope to catch you soon. Yeah, great. Great to, great to meet you. Please let your Drinks Curious friends know about the podcast. At the end of this season, we'll be giving away a hamper full of every single product featured on the season to one of our Instagram followers. That's going to be a whopping great delicious hamper. Wish I could win it myself. Um, so make sure you're following us at Building Liquid Podcast. And if you really love the show, then please feel free to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your usual podcast listening platform just to help people find us. Thanks so much, and I will catch you soon.